Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to offer leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, each week on this very programme, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sport, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We get their take on the current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from a pandemic business trends to marketing spends and, of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. Now, my guest on today's show this afternoon, on what is a wonderful spring day here in the capital, is Tim Bond, Head of Insight at the Data and Marketing Association. The DMA is a trade organisation for marketers, which is considered to be the driving force behind marketing, setting the standards for the UK's data and marketing community to thrive. And as you can imagine, the DMA has been conducting a great amount of research into the experiences different businesses have had during the COVID-19 pandemic and have recently unveiled their latest marketing email tracker report, offering valuable insights into how firms have been allocating marketing budgets during the health crisis. And we'll be looking into some of its findings today. But without further ado, let's welcome Tim Bond onto the programme. Uh, Tim, hello. Hi, Scott. Thanks, uh, thanks very much for having me. Thank you as well, Tim, for taking the time to join us today. Um, now, I know that you've spent a great amount of time detailing how businesses have been affected by the events of the pandemic um, at the DMA in the last few months. But just before we get into those details, um, I'm intrigued to understand what it's been like for yourselves at the Data and Marketing Association managing through this crisis because I can imagine it's brought much sort of operational change. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, the, the biggest being that I'm I'm still talking to you from home um, and, and have been since March of 2020 when uh, when we closed our offices. We um, I've actually only been back once myself. Um, we have had it open periodically over last summer and, and again this summer for some days of the week. But, you know, as a membership body, that's meant that all of our kind of face-to-face meetings with council groups and and committee members from our from our membership um, base have, have had to go virtual. I mean, that's meant, um, frankly, all of my shirts and jackets gather, gathering dust over the last 18 months. <laughs> um, but, but it's made some things um, actually easier um, in terms of being able to uh, really deliver those meetings um, a lot more quickly. And actually across the UK, truly, because we don't require people to come into London anymore. We also obviously had its challenges as well, just in terms of actually being able to see people and, and have, you know, um, those normal kind of around the office interactions that you might expect. And um, we have to almost kind of create those um, in, in our own digital world now. We certainly do. And um, digital working practices is something that we'll be talking about a little later on um, on the, uh, the podcast, of course. Um, in terms of the business world and what sort of landscape we're seeing now and um, we are at this point starting to move out of social restrictions according to the government's roadmap out of lockdown and although there are tentative signs of recovery there um, one of the biggest impacts that businesses have been reporting has been their ability to sort of retain existing talent and that's a lingering issue even going into this period of time where we are looking a bit more hopeful isn't it 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, beyond the, as you already touched on, the, the fundamental financial issues, um, you know, back in March when we last um, did our, our specific kind of coronavirus research, a year on from, from its first edition back in 2020, we saw, that we saw there that, you know, revenues were still down by around a quarter, um, although that was improvement on where they were um, over last year. But even then, things like business as usual sort of work um, and workloads were still only two-thirds what it normally would have been pre-pandemic. But businesses, I think what we've seen over the last year in all of those um, surveys and research that we've done, they've been doing everything they can to try and retain staff over the last year. Um, now, within that, unfortunately, many have had to let um, particularly freelance and contract staff go. Um, and potentially ask some of their retained team members to accept reductions, be that in in, in pay, bonuses, or or hours, um, or any mix of those. However, on the more positive side, as you said, as we're starting to unlock, um, many were, were positive back in March about the plans to bring back furloughed staff and um, to hire new, both freelance and permanent staff. Um, and and in fact, one in five um, again in March were saying they're already doing this with about half expecting to be able to hire some, some new team members over the course of this year. So so really starting to come out of that recovery even back in March and, and having the kind of roadmap laid out, people were starting to feel that positivity for their business, which is really encouraging. Mm, it is encouraging, isn't it? Um, with one in five businesses, around about twenty-one percent, I think that equates to planning to recruit, especially for data and marketing roles in the uh, the near future. So there are some green shoots coming through there, um, and. With regards to those flexible working practices, as we've touched on earlier, I think now would be a good time, of course, to, uh, to touch on that. Um, there are real indications, aren't there, that albeit there are disadvantages and advantages to flexible working frameworks, that it is going to be the new sort of status quo moving forward. And indeed, it is preferred by a large number of workforces. Yeah, definitely. It's something that we see from staff members in particular, um, not, not just around, you know, coronavirus in the last year but but actually the actually living up to the flexibility that a lot of um, brands and, and businesses and employers have um, sort of promised in recent years but not necessarily had the the feeling that necessarily staff members could truly do it um, you know I, I've been very tentative to talk about the new normal um, over the last year because I think, frankly, the new normal is going to look remarkably like the old one. But I think the last year has shown a lot of organisations that they simply don't need to expect people to be in the office, whether that's all the time or or at all. Um, you know, outside of data and marketing professionals, another example is, you know, customer service centres, um, which kind of has a connection to, to obviously our audience. But, um, you know, th- those people, there have been a lot of big brands that have had to switch from having those big customer service centers full of people and full of staff to actually having them all remotely at home. Now, is there any reason other than maybe for training purposes that that's, that, that, that all of those staff need to return to a single environment? I'm mm. not sure there is. So it's going to be really interesting to see how um, both office-based, but also then those kind of broader um, group-based kind of activities change in the, in the next year as well. And certainly we've seen some benefits 
of flexible working for the work-life balance on the mental health and well-being side of things, which is an issue that rightly has been amplified by the pandemic, um, but also the impact of it on sustainability as well, because what we are seeing is that people are no longer having to commute to work and can be more time efficient, but also the lack of a need to commute and the lack of, of course, driving in cars, taking public transport, that's reducing on carbon emissions, isn't it? So there are some other benefits to this whole thing as well that have come out of the pandemic too on that side. Yeah, I mean, simply the the work-life balance, I think, is is the really big one for for me personally. And, you know, that means three hours back in my day, right? Um, It's literally putting time back into our lives and that we'd normally spend um, in cars, on public transport, and that's incredible. Again, on a very personal level, you know, that means I'm able to walk my daughter to work, I'm able to be there for her dinner time, um, I'm able to spend more more time with my wife and my soon-to-arrive uh, second child as well. Mm. Um, the, the sustainability one is, is an interesting point as well. There is a shift in, in where we work, and, and that could have serious ramifications on um, not just where, but also how we get there as well, which I think you kind of touched on this. Um, lots more cyclists over the last year. Um, I'm personally quite a keen cyclist myself, so I'm quite excited to see that and see them out on the road. So I always say hello. But, um, but there is a concern there. Are they going to be fair weather? Um, is that necessarily going to hold true? And, and do we have the infrastructure? Mm. Um, I know speaking from London, you know, we've got some quite good infrastructure in central London. Um, but actually to get onto that from the outskirts is rather simple. And is that necessarily true of all the towns and cities around the UK? Maybe some more work to go there. The other thing that coronavirus has done, which is potentially of, of concern, is is add that level of kind of wariness of people of necessarily getting on public transport at the moment. Um, and are they potentially going to turn back to cars when they do have to go back to the office? Mm. Um, so, so, yes, I think sustainability should hopefully continue to um, continue to grow and accelerate in a positive way, as it has done over recent years. But I think there are still some areas there we, where we want to and make sure that we're thinking about it as a society and making sure that we've got the infrastructure in place to allow people to make um, more kind of um, environmentally conscious and sustainable decisions as well. And infrastructure is important there on a, um, a couple of counts, and um, certainly so in terms of encouraging people to travel by more green modes of transport to encourage cycling and other such things, but also as well, um, digital infrastructure, because what the pandemic has exposed is a lot of digital poverty in various settings. And I think with working from home, perhaps becoming more of the status quo, bridging that sort of gap in sort of digital capability and bringing gigabit capable Wi-Fi certainly rolling out around the country. That's another part of the Build Back Better agenda that's going to be incredibly important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I imagine at this point we've all been on, um, you know, virtual calls or or meetings where all of a sudden somebody freezes or, or everyone freezes and you re- suddenly realise you're the one who nobody can hear anymore. Um, and yeah, that, that's just down to, um, without being an IT specialist myself, um, some of that infrastructure um, that, that just needs to be sort of continually upgraded mm. and, and worked on and also then how it's balanced across people requiring it from home as opposed to all going into one central location uh, of an office where you can just kind of put a a big pipe to, to oversimplify, I'm sure, the analogy, but where you can just kind of direct a big pipe to the office. 
And we've talked an awful lot about flexible working, but one thing that it has done, despite its many advantages, is it's required business leaders to adapt as well. And managing individuals from afar in some ways does warrant a change in leadership style, doesn't it, in a way? Because sometimes you have to be a little bit more on the ball with certain cues, particularly when you know, you're trying to spot whether or not people are doing well or in the right state of mind. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there are still further changes here to come as well. I mean, the, the days of, you know, maybe one of the C-suite, say the, say the CEO or the CFO kind of walking the floor and, kind of, you know, chatting to various team members and, mm. and teams to, to kind of show their face. Potentially, when, when nobody's there, um, you know, what, what benefit does that bring? Um, but I think also on a, on a more personal management level, um, for, from top to bottom of organizations, you know, finding that balance between autonomy and contact will really be key in, in remote working environments. You know, it's the difference between team members feeling like, you know, they're, they're overloaded with, with Teams or Zoom and, and, and virtual calls and meetings versus actually they're not feeling like they've necessarily got the human contact or or the culture of the organization, particularly when you're talking about new members of staff coming into a business. You know, how can you truly um, imbibe that culture and then with that culture um, of the organization without necessarily having the, the office environment or the regular contact to do it? Um, I think, for, again, for me, it's been really important with, with my team to have um, those kind of semi-formal check-ins. Um, so we've, we've actually, throughout this lockdown, um, the, the last lockdown um, and in the last year, we've had three meetings a week, um, which have been just blocked in the diary, uh, and we all agreed we all agreed fairly early on that, that we wouldn't book things over. Um, now they are not actually work related meetings. Um, sometimes we'll touch on a project that, that maybe we need to have a discussion about, but more often than not, you know, if it's me and one particular person talking about it, we'll say, okay, let's take that afterwards and have a conversation about it then, or, or look at diaries. And, think that up but what those are, have been far more important with is actually just seeing how everyone is um, and you know they, they might be blocked out for half an hour but they might only take 10 minutes because we're all super busy and other days you know they've taken 45 minutes because we've all had you know a really good natter and, and got to have a, a chat about you know I don't know a TV series that we've all been watching the game at the weekend when sport was back on and I think those are the conversations that we need to make sure we allow for in, in digital and a fast basis um, that just naturally and organically happen um, in businesses. I think that's very right. And having dwelt an awful lot on the new reality, if you will, that we've been working in, um, I suppose we should now get on to what the DMA has uncovered on marketing budgets because there have been one or two interesting findings here. Um, a notable one, of course, Tim, being that email marketing has actually increased in proliferation to the point where marketing spend on this mode has now passed 20% for the first time. Um, so what the pandemic has done is it's driven an email marketing agenda forward in a way, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. I think um, it, it's really forced many brands to have to pivot pr pretty quickly. Um, and in that, in, in their business models, they've you know naturally lent on the tried and tested channels, um, email being the primary example of this. Uh, the, the average proportion, as you said, of, of marketing budget spent on email passed 20%, but that's actually the, the first time that that's happened in the um, five, six years that, that we've been running this 
this survey of, uh, of industry professionals as well. And for those interested, the average was 21.3%. Um, but I'm sure we all experienced that sort of initial burst of emails right when coronavirus hit last uh, last March 2020. Mm. Um, and I think that only go to only went to showcase how important but also how easily scalable the channel was that when they had the, that kind of need to communicate with customers um, they could do it really quickly um, using email as a really informative way as well and of course those primarily using email campaigns for customer service purposes has risen from nine percent to thirteen percent year on year according to the survey um so is it fair to say perhaps that email is now sort of the dominant channel being used to engage with consumers as a result of lockdown yeah i I would say that I think that implies that it that it wasn't the case before, which I'm not sure was true. You know, mm. the email is the most used channel by brands to engage consumers across the customer journey, um, and and it's that's not necessarily a new trend. Um, but I'd agree it's been it's that significant focus on the last year, um, and that's been really important in showing its value, um, and also that more marketers have realised just how important it is as that central thread around which multi-channel approaches can and, and should be built because it can become an incredibly powerful, not just an powerful um, kind of engagement channel, both as sales, customer service and, and everything else, but also potentially as a way of understanding and identifying customers and their preferences. And, you know, you can learn a heck of a lot from um, from their behavior with email, but also you can use that email address potentially as an identifier once they are a customer and know actually what they and link that in with their purchase history and other things. So it's incredibly valuable as a communication channel, but also as an identifier. And um, when we talk about that V word value, what has all of this done in terms of return on investment for email marketing? Where exactly do we stand on that now? But again, it's another positive pandemic story for, for email at least. Um, as despite that kind of growth in terms of volume, um, ROI has actually remained uh, pretty strong and, and has gone up slightly year on year again. Marketers, uh, so people in the industry now estimate that email's uh, return on investment is £38.33p, to be precise there with the average. But that means that for every pound spent, they estimate they're getting over £38 back in revenue and a figure that's risen steadily from um, just under £30 back in 2016. So, again, a really positive picture for when when volumes go up like that with a channel, there is sometimes a risk that, you know, maybe the, the, the revenues come down relatively to, to that, um, but not the case for, for email in the last year. It's still been seen as really important. Mm. So email certainly has um, sort of grown um, in proliferation, but are there any other marketing channels which businesses are finding particularly favourable during this time? Yeah, so one of the other positive stories here has actually been um, traditional mail. Um, so, so what you get from your door as opposed to what you get in your digital inbox. Um, some figures from um, the JIC mail, for, for those not aware, that's the Joint Industry Currency for Mail. Um, that's, uh, they are due to be released fairly soon showcase how actually in engagement um, and kind of commercial actions taken from mail that people receive, um, whether that's addressed or, or door drops, um, has increased while, while people have been more at home. Um, maybe on the, on the less positive side, um, these are the channels that have been really hard to hit. You know, out of home is, is a good example here, um, simply because people haven't necessarily been on the high street or 
or have the same footfall mm. um, kind of patterns as they have pre-pandemic. You know, there are lots of sites, I imagine, in, in London that have not seen anywhere near the same footfall as they would have, as well as other city centres. Um, although I did see um, just this morning so some initial data from Kantar um, that it seems that consumers are returning faster than we might have thought to the high street. I think, you know, potentially a mixture of good weather um, and some of those uh, uh, non-essential retail finally kind of reopening um, means that some people are really keen to get out there and, and get back to our high streets, which is potentially positive both for out of home and, of course, for, for those businesses that are, on, that are still on those high streets as well. And I suppose the hope for that is that it isn't just a fair weather thing, as we've uh, discussed uh, before, and hopefully that people will still have that confidence and have that eagerness to go out um, onto their local high streets and spend money, basically, because otherwise, again, there'll be that exposure problem. Yeah, exactly. And I think um, right there, we have the fair weather has, I think, hopefully allowed people to take that first step. Um, you know, when it was even when it was raining just a couple of weeks ago uh, or a month or so ago, um, you know, you didn't necessarily want to go to the high street because you didn't know if there was going to be cover or you're able to be inside. Whereas just having the sunny weather um, means that people are able to take that first step onto the high street, see that actually they can go in and out, and there are there is good spacing in, you know, in the stores and and one way systems in certain shops and, and and maybe cafes are kind of have kind of taken out some of that seating to allow people to sit indoors. So then potentially if weather turns again, I would hope that some of that footfall is still able to return. So it's not going to drop straight back down to how it was a couple of weeks or months ago. And that some people still have that confidence going back and are able to support those local businesses. And I suppose during this time, what businesses have had to be is sensitive to the economic situation and the fact that there is a great deal of uncertainty and less investment and less spending, particularly during the lockdown period. So um, reflecting on COVID as a whole, um, have marketing objectives, do you think, altered in any way as a result of the pandemic? Yeah, well, I think um, you, you touched on it earlier, actually, with that figure around email campaigns and the focus rising on customer service and alongside that has gone a, a slight reduction in the focus on on just sales driven um, and, and you know and, and conversion driven emails and um, I think that's really a, a clear indicator of the coronavirus and, and people wanting to inform their customers what's going on about things like opening hours and, and service delivery and, and things like that but I think in some other analysis that actually we're, we're due to release in, in a couple of months time I think it's towards the end of July um, we've also seen an increase in the effectiveness of retention campaigns, um, mm. particularly over customer acquisition ones in the last year. And I think that customers tend to revert to brands that they know and trust when when things you know when times get tough. So I think that's maybe slightly understandable. Um, the one certainty is that really consumer behaviours will, will continue to change. Uh, you know, even pre-COVID, post-COVID, and, and long after, you know, uh, evolution is, is the way. It, it, but it's only through um, what we call intelligent marketing, so that's marketing really fueled by data and insight, that brands and marketers can truly understand sort of where those shifts are happening and then be able to meet their customers there, not just today, but also into tomorrow. And I think that's where that emphasis has really changed, utilising that data um, and understanding it to understand their customers and give them the service that they um, not only want but, but have needed over the last year. And I suppose if 
modes such as email marketing are on the rise. It gives rise to different sorts of challenges that marketers have had to deal with over the last 14 months because marketing digitally requires good quality of data to make that work. And sometimes obtaining that can be easier said than done. Exactly. And that, again, you've, you've picked up another, another key finding of the, of the research where, um, yes, there was um, less less concern around sort of um, resources. Um, but that also meant that in the last year, um, marketers were really worried, increasingly concerned about the, the data they had, that the, the kind of quality, whether it's siloed, um, how they're able to use it but also with the technologies they had in the, uh, available. I think that's maybe been another big concern for, for a lot of marketers as they had to rely on these more digital first channels, um, not just email, but the other ones as well, like, like their websites and then maybe um, starting to implement kind of instant messenger chat services through sites and things like that. They've realized very quickly that potentially that technology they have in place isn't necessarily up to standard. Um, and when the technology is not good or your data is not good, the two aren't, you know, it's going to affect the other one um, because they are so reliant on each other. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the big challenges now that, that a lot of brands have seen and going forwards into the next year or two as we recover. Actually, good for us as, you know, as the industry body, and um, you know, proud, proudly talking about intelligent marketing, I think it's really encouraging and um, the organizations have been forced to see this issue around data quality and, and the standards of technology they have in place and because it's going to mean improvement in the future. It is certainly. It's going to be more innovation and I suppose big opportunities for businesses offering solutions in this area as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with regards to the businesses that the DMA has spoken to over the course of the year, the last uh, 14 months, uh, Tim, um, what are businesses actually forecasting for the future in terms of growth and recovery? Because I can imagine that there's some optimism there, but it is somewhat tentative. Yeah, exactly that. So if we go back to the, the coronavirus survey that I mentioned in March, um, and that was the year on from, from the start, we were already starting to see some signs of positivity back then. Um, you know, confidence seems to be coming back as, as the UK was started to open. And, and well, for many sectors anyway, I'll, I'll sort of park the, the, the tourism and travel um, to, to one side for the, for, the, for the moment and focus on the majority. However, I think the prognosis for, for many firms is what you just said, one of caution. You know, think back 12 months ago now, and there was a lot of positivity and confidence again then too. Um, I'm I'm no epidemiologist, but I'm not going to claim to be. Um, but this year um, now, I think, feels different to a year ago. And I hope that we'll continue to see um, that growing normalcy return. Um, and so those revenues and so those businesses that have survived are able to not just survive, but begin to thrive into the end of the year. Um, now, Finally, that, that should mean actually we'll start to see what that new normal actually looks like, the one that I've been uh, so, so avoided talking about for the last year. Mm. Um, because as I said, I think that's going to be remarkably similar to the old normal. Um, more broadly about some of the, the trends and consumer trends we've seen in the last year, um, you know, there have been lots of people, or not lots of people, there have been a number of people um, who've been out there have been out there and said, you know, these are, Massive sea changes that we didn't see coming from anything. Um, well, as somebody who's worked in, in kind of consumer trends for, for over a decade now, um, a lot of these have actually simply been accelerations of areas that we've been tracking for a number of years. 
um, you know, things like um, digital first contact. So that's not just email. That's what I mentioned about instant messengers, um, use of um, voice services, um, use of video, video chat services as well. Um, those have been sort of underlying growing things that we've been waiting to accelerate over the last few years. Um, and what COVID and, and the lockdowns and the forcing of people to have to engage from afar, what that's done is simply accelerate those incredibly. Um, now, there is also the option, opportunity that those will um, sort of come back to earth a little bit. Um, but I'm not sure any of those will necessarily return to exactly where they were 18 months ago. Um, so yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting. And as, as I already said, the, the key here is in data and understanding and mm-hmm. actually listening to your customers. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily getting on the phone and asking them questions, although that's not a bad idea either. Um, but actually looking at the data you're getting back, understanding how they're communicating and how they want to communicate with you as a business. Um, and then actually making sure that you've got the data and insights to be able to meet them with the service that they're asking for, um, not just today, but as I said, tomorrow as well, and be able to predict potentially where they might go. Absolutely right. And I think we should also touch on the fact as well that the recovery or the predicted recovery is contingent on continued success of the vaccine rollout and also restrictions continually being reduced. And as we record this podcast today, um, which is the 9th of June 2021, we are waiting on the 14th of June this coming Monday to gauge whether the 21st of June milestone is going to go ahead as planned. That's going to be hugely important. Um, But also, the government's actions going forward from here are also going to be more important in its support for business because we've seen so many measures put in place, haven't we, Tim, over the last year to keep businesses afloat. And we've seen confidence in the government returning. We've seen a third of businesses are now saying that they have more confidence in the UK government and what they're doing. But half of businesses also believe that the government should be doing more to support firms. And that's going to be critical in the weeks to come. Yes, definitely. I think um, particularly as, um, you know, we potentially have localised issues um, like like we're seeing up in the um, northwest at the moment, you know, and and making sure that the businesses up there are able to support their their staff um, through situations like this, um, because it's not just going to happen there. And one has to think that, you know, those could easily pop up in other areas. Um, But also then enabling those businesses long term um, to also continue to invest. One of the big things that we'd um, really like to see more of, and we saw some of it over the pandemic, but then it sort of fell by the wayside, I think, as financial constraints became even more challenging through 2020, um, is the investment in, in staff. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there, there is a learning and development need in, um, in our industry um, to make sure that we have uh, the requisite people with particularly the, the, the data and, and insight-driven skills and that the industry needs to be able to understand those customers to give that service to, um, you know, to, to benefit both the, the consumer and the business long term that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I think actually getting businesses to be able to invest, and that's one of the areas that I know the government has been um, also quite quite keen to to make sure with their boot camp um, program. Um, it's just about continuing to do that in the long term and. Um, you know, maybe having a look at apprenticeship schemes and offering people new ways into industries like ours, um, as well as many others as well, um, that, that aren't necessarily the traditional um, sort of university route, because um, there are there are multitudes of ways um, of, of getting into um, industry that, that, you know, 
are equally valid and equally as important depending on your background. Mm, exactly right. And I think as we start to see what sort of picture the um, economic recovery starts to take, it would be really beneficial actually, Tim, to welcome you back onto the programme with us and just see what has changed since this discussion that we're having now and what sort of route the country is taking then. And I understand that probably by that time there'll also be some exciting new research findings that will also be published into the uh, the national sphere by the DMA. That's correct as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. We, we've got lots more um, coming in, uh, over the course of this year. We've got um, some more research into uh, customer engagement, which is one of our major bits of consumer research every year. That will be September. I mentioned um, we've got the, the release of some more um, kind of research into uh, media measurement and effectiveness, which is coming out in July. Um, and more besides, so the easiest way to find out about everything we're up to is um, looking us up on, on dma.org. UK, um, and you can find everything that we're up to in terms of events, research and everything else, as well as our learning as well, if, you, if you're interested in taking up some of our courses. Yes, certainly would encourage all of the uh, the listening base to certainly look up the DMA. There's some fantastic uh, stuff on their website. Um, Tim, thank you ever so much uh, for joining us on the uh, the programme today. It's been a real, real pleasure welcoming you um, onto the show with us. And um, also do take care and stay safe with all that is still going on um, as well, because we're not quite out of the woods with this um, whole coronavirus business yet, but better times are coming, I'm sure of that. Thanks a lot for having me, Scott. I was speaking to Tim Bond, Head of Insight at the Data and Marketing Association, and I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Until next time, now that indoor hospitality has returned, I'm heading back to my usual spot in the Westminster Arms to raise a glass to outstanding leadership, and hopefully over the coming weeks we'll be keep taking further strides toward normal life. <laughs>